Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money. The best things in life are free. But you can give them to the birds and bees. I From Fool Global Headquarters, this is Motley Fool Money. It's the Motley Fool Money Radio Show. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me this week, Jason Moser and Ron Gross. Good to see you, gentlemen. Hey, How hey. you doing, Chris? We've got the latest headlines from Wall Street. We will get into the shark tank with our guest, Mark Cuban. And as always, we've got some stocks on our radar. But we begin with the market in general. The stock market's rise over the past month hit a speed bump on Thursday when all the major indices fell more than 5%. Coincidentally or not, this was the day after Federal Reserve Chief Jay Powell gave a press conference and was candid about his belief that economic recovery in America will take a couple of years. Ron, I got to be honest, I was a little surprised to see the reaction in the market. I know it wasn't just all in response to Powell's comments, but he didn't really say anything that sounded outrageous to me. No, I think we're seeing two related things unfold. We're seeing COVID cases increase as we reopen our economy. And then, as you say, at the same time, we saw Jay Powell of the Fed come out and say the recovery is going to be long and slow. So I think those two things caused investors, investors to say, well, listen, the market has had quite the recovery. Um, those institutional investors out there that are more day traders than us fools say, I'm going to take some money off the table. I'm not feeling so good about this. Uh, you know, The Fed is saying interest rates will be near zero through at least 2022, which, by the way, sometimes the market loves to hear, and sometimes the market gets nervous about hearing things like that. And on an, any given day, you can pick which reaction investors will have. But I also heard some good things coming out of the Fed, like GDP will be 5% in 2021, they think. Think unemployment will be down to 5.5% in 2022. These are relatively reassuring um, data points if, of course, uh, they're, they're able to predict the future, which we know they, they certainly can't. But uh, listen, some money came off the table. It's been quite a run. The markets were actually up at some point over the last five days or so. Now we're back down. But uh, the recovery uh, still, I think, is, is intact. But let's, let's take a measured approach, folks. Jason, what do you think? Uh, you know, I mean, I, I don't feel like it's a big leap to 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 get to this point where we feel like okay, COVID nineteen cases will increase as we reopen the economy, and the recovery is going to take a long time. I mean, I feel like we've been saying this ever since this really started, right? I mean, that that, that to me is really nothing new. So, uh, you know, I mean, I, I take big sell offs like yesterday, obviously with a, with a grain of salt. I mean, it certainly is going to be a while till we get back on firmer footing. And there's no question that we're we're not through the coronavirus uh, situation yet. I mean, that's just we're we're going to have to figure out how to live in a world where this exists for some time to come. And, and there was, I, you know, I saw a point made earlier. Secretary Mnuchin said. There's no way we can shut the economy down. Like again, right? I mean, if if COVID nineteen cases do start getting a little bit more out of hand, it, it doesn't necessarily mean they're going to be able to go back there and just shut down the economy. And I think he's right to say that because you have to start weighing the costs for the versus the benefits. And yes, clearly there's a public health issue here, but when you think about how connected everything is, when you shut down a, in an economy and the livelihoods that you impact there, and we've already seen while they're certainly some good intentions from our government in trying to help people keep their heads above water. That's a way easier said than done. So, I, you know, I think that we are just going to be living in a world here where COVID-19 is a concern until we, you know, come up with treatments and or a vaccine. 
I think that it's fair to assume that the economy is going to take a little bit longer uh, to, to recover than perhaps maybe we anticipated, and that will probably play out in market volatility. But it certainly, to me, does not mean investors should be hanging on the sidelines. My guess is that if we come upon a time, and I hope we don't, but if we come upon a time where the hospitals start to get overrun again, and our first responders are overrun again, and people start to get nervous that if they get COVID, they won't be able to get a ventilator, or they won't be able to readily access the hospital. I think lots of folks are going to go, oh, I went a little too far too fast, and I'm going back home, I'm putting on my mask, and things are going to slow again, which uh, I hope it doesn't get to that. Looks to me like like it, it could end up getting to that, certainly in certain pockets. We're already seeing it in certain states, certain municipalities. Um, so, again, we're going we're gonna to watch this play out, and... Um, and the economy obviously will, will be greatly affected by whatever the virus ends up deciding to do. Let's get to some company news and shares of Adobe hitting an all-time high on Friday after the software company posted record revenue in the second quarter. Jason, Adobe must be selling a lot of PDFs. <laughs> Man, I'm feeling really good about building this position during that short-lived bear market. This was a company I had on my radar for a while. Uh, and you know, when we think about the strongest businesses out there and companies that just have a stranglehold on a massive market and continue to iterate and bring more to the table, I mean, Adobe is at the top of the list for me. And CEO Shantanu Narayan said on the call, I think this was a good quote. He said, "Great companies are defined by how they lead through adversity. We've successfully navigated several crises and have always used them as a catalyst to make strategic and structural change to emerge stronger." And I think the numbers certainly bear that out. You know, as we talk about this shift, this tectonic shift towards all things digital. I mean, it was a strong quarter, top line up 14% on strong digital media performance, uh, annualized recurring revenue up across all three segments of the business, document cloud revenue, which I think is a really interesting part of the business. That's kind of a competitor uh, to what DocuSign offers. That document cloud revenue was $360 million, up 22%. They're going to continue to ramp up investments in that side of the business. So, you know, I think all things told, what you have here is a, a market-leading company in a very good position balance sheet-wise. The business model enables just really attractive margins. And we're talking about 90% plus uh, gross margins there, and in 90% of its business is subscription-related. Uh, so, we talk about this move towards the digital economy. Adobe is definitely one of the companies leading us there. The market's reaction makes sense, and uh, I think uh, share owners of the stock today should feel very good. Shares of Lululemon Athletica down 8% this week. Overall revenue fell 17% in the first quarter. Although, Ron, and we've seen this from a lot of retailers, online sales, definitely the bright spot. Yeah, this is a rare miss for Lulu, but um, it's almost like how how can you fault them? What what you know? It's possible that the analyst expectations were just too frothy. It's not that Lulu didn't really perform, as you said, revenue down seventeen percent, but all stores were closed, obviously for for a decent part of the quarter. But the app and website sales, as you mentioned, up seventy percent. Um, so a very robust um, part of their business there. That was fifty four percent of total revenue, where it normally is about half, about 27% of revenue. So you, so you saw that spike, certainly, um, both absolutely and relative to total revenue. Those uh, direct sales up 170% in Europe, 150% in Australia, so really strong overseas. Interestingly, they didn't give any comp store data, which I certainly can understand why, if you have 
you know, stores closed, the, the data doesn't make that much sense. But yet, I do see most retailers still providing that data. So just a little bit um, interesting note that they decided not to. Um, not surprisingly, both gross margins, operating margins were down, earnings per share down 70%. Again, no fault of their own. But they began to reopen as of May 3rd. 295 stores out of their 489 or so uh, were open as of June 10th. All China-based stores are now open. Uh, so I think they'll get back on track, um, of course, depending on what happens with the economy going forward. Um, and as all retailers um, are doing, they uh, refuse to give guidance, which is no, no surprise there. But that is interesting about not giving out the comp store data. And now I want to fast forward three months to see if they do it again. Because it could just be a blip or it could be something that they're testing the waters on. Because, you know, if they don't have to give all the information, then maybe they start ratcheting it back. It's possible. I, I, my guess is it's a blip. But we have seen companies come out and say, we're done with guidance. It's, this is not just because of COVID. Um, it doesn't make sense for us going forward. So we'll see if there's a little bit of a shift. This week, Starbucks announced it will be closing up to 400 locations in the U.S. and another 200 in Canada. And Jason, they also updated guidance and said they're going to take a $3 billion hit in the third quarter. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think it's very, you know, we were talking about this earlier in the week um, regarding what the Starbucks of the future looks like. I think the Starbucks of the coming decade is going to look very different from the Starbucks that we've grown up with. And, and I think for investors, honestly, and for consumers, that's a good thing. Um, you know, we've always talked about that that notion of the third place, right? The, the work and home and that other place where you can go to kind of feel comfortable and get some work done. And, and Starbucks was built on that notion for a long time. Now, I, I think we're seeing, in, in COVID-19 wasn't even really the catalyst here. I think even before, what we're seeing is a consumer base that's more focused on grab and go, right? I mean, it, it, we saw that, that COO Roz Brewer actually noted that their business was essentially uh, over 80% grab and go before we even came into this pandemic. So, so folks aren't as interested in sitting into those stores. Uh, and, and that to me makes sense. I, I, I certainly feel that way. I, I definitely think our consumer behavior has changed that way. Now, they did note they typically close around 100 company operated, uh, operated stores in North America each year. And a lot of that is due to leases expiring. Um, now, going forward, whereas about one-third of Starbucks locations in the U.S. today have a drive-through, 60% of the locations in the pipeline will have drive-throughs going forward. So, I think all in all, what this does, it gives them the chance to, to more or less right-size the cost structure of the business for this you know, new grab-and-go consumer. And, and ultimately, as investors, we have to like that because it's still going to be the same powerful brand selling that same legally addictive substance and coffee and, and the food to go with it. So, all in all, yeah, I mean, it, it, it does sound like they're making a big shift. They have to evolve, and, and I think they're going to be able to pull it off. I have never, not once, grabbed a book or my laptop and gone to hang out at Starbucks. Have you guys... I would say the only time I've ever really done that is like, you know, at Full HQ when we would have the fire drills and we'd get kicked <laughs> out of the building for like an hour. I'd grab my laptop and go to the one of the Starbucks's right by work and sit down for an hour so I could keep getting some stuff done. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I, don't, I just think now more and more people, they're not really looking to sit around a restaurant for an extended period of time, particularly now when, you know, the pandemic is requiring everybody to stay six feet apart and everything has to be cleaned and recleaned and sanitized and whatnot. Uh, so, I, I think this just gives them a chance to right size their cost structure. And if they do it, you know, in a thoughtful fashion, uh, yeah, that certainly should carry down to the bottom line for investors at the end of the day. 
Coming up, the latest reminder that it's one thing to announce a deal, but another thing to actually close the deal. Don't touch that dial. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here with Jason Moser and Ron Gross. First quarter results for discount retailer Five Below were about as bad as you would think, considering the overwhelming number of Five Below locations that were closed. But Ron, Five Below's stock is hanging in there a little bit better than I thought it would. Not bad. Down 15% still year-to-date, so a little bit worse than the overall um, S&P 500, which has recovered nicely. But th- these guys have had a nice run, significantly beating the S&P 500 over, let's just say, the last five years. Um, so th- they could they can take a little breather there here. And again, with all retailers, all stores were closed as of March 20th. Nothing they could do about it. Uh, they began to reopen in late April. 90% are open as of June 9th. So, of course, we'll continue to watch um, what it looks like going forward. But for the quarter, sales down 45%. Comp sales, which they did offer, unlike Lululemon, down 52%. They lost $50 million in the quarter versus a profit of $26 million in last year's uh, same quarter. Uh, shore up the balance sheet. They increased their line of credit uh, from 50 million to 225 million. You see this across the board. Everyone making sure they have enough cash to kind of survive, and they gave no guidance as all retailers are are, are going uh, are doing. And they did kind of reiterate their goal of 2,500 stores, and that's up from about 900 today. So they still um, see growth. Obviously, they'll have to wait this out, and then they'll get back to business. Shares of pet retailer Chewy flat over the past week, despite the fact that first quarter revenue looked good and Jason Chewy's doing a really nice job of growing their base of active customers. Yeah, they are. I mean, you know, I, I love the pet market. It's it's a big market. It's got a lot of tailwinds, it does seem now. Um, as, as more folks, particularly younger generations, are, are taking to having pets. And, you know, when you look back to the S1 for this company, they listed their total market opportunity at $70 billion. I mean, it, frankly, with the numbers they're turning out, I, I think that Chewy might just be one of the best ways to play that. Uh, the first quarter net sales increased 46%. Uh, from from a year ago to 1.62 billion dollars, they they added a record 1.6 million net active customer accounts in the first quarter. Now that was double the average quarterly pace of ads in 2019, and ultimately they ended the quarter with 15 million active customers. It was up 3.7 from the first quarter a year ago, and the fastest acceleration that that they've ever seen in the company's history. And that makes a lot of sense as as we were shut down, and, and you know e-commerce played a bigger role. And, and I think that you know Amazon now we're, we're seeing that Amazon isn't necessarily the only game in town. I think a lot of companies are jumping in there and trying to prove their metal in this e-commerce space, and Chewy's certainly doing that. Um, they had that auto ship uh, customer uh, relationship there. They exceeded one billion dollars for the first time in a single quarter, and uh, you know they launched a new fulfillment center in Charlotte to be able to shorten the distance from the product to the consumer. And, and their customer acquisition costs are coming down as well. That ultimately boosts margins. Uh, it's sort of comparable to what we talk about Wayfair, right? They pay a lot to acquire those customers, so they want to keep them. And, and, and Chewy's doing a good job of acquiring those customers and then keeping them. And that results in re- repeat sales, which ultimately flows down to the bottom line. I, I'm just really impressed with what these guys are doing. And, and based on what I've seen from Amazon over the past couple of months during this pandemic, while they're doing an okay job, it's certainly not the Amazon that I've been used to, to buying from over the past several years. Uh, so, uh, you know, hey, listen, we've got a couple of dogs here. I'm going to give Chewy a try and see if they can't uh, meet my high expectations, Chris. 
One month ago on this show, we talked about the news that Uber was planning to buy Grubhub. And that is not going to happen because this week, a European delivery company called JustEatTakeaway.com announced that it is buying Grubhub in an all-stock deal worth $7.3 billion. Ron Gross, what happened? <laughs> you know, this is interesting because Takeaway and Just Eat recently received uh, regulatory approval for their $8 billion merger. So they got together. Now they're going even one step further, and they're trying to take out Grubhub, as you said, for over $7 billion, where Uber was probably around mid $6 billion, $6.6 billion. So kind of upping the ante there. We could still see another competing offer come in here. This isn't necessarily over yet. It'll be interesting to watch that. Um, but this creates a, a pretty big uh, company at this point, probably be number two behind Uber Eats, uh, presence in 25 countries, 70 million, million active consumers. Um, the Just Eat Takeaway shares uh, were selling off on the deal. Perhaps folks are thinking um, they overpaid uh, Grubhub, $1.4 in revenue, not profitable in recent periods, but they are cash flow positive, which is interesting because I've never kind of been a fan of this model. Um, I am a big fan of using it as a consumer. Um, but. It's tough to make money. It's tough to keep the drivers happy, so they're making enough money. My son recently started working for DoorDash, and he thinks it's great. But once he figures that I'm not going to pay for the gas, and there is depreciation on the car, you know, it, it, the, the proposition isn't as exciting. But this is going to create a, a pretty big company, and it'll be interesting to watch the competitive environment. How long before we know whether Uber dodged a bullet in letting this get away, or that they blew an opportunity? Do you think we're a year from now we'll be able to call that? Two years. I'm going to go give it two years, and we'll have a pretty good indication. Can I just say that uh, other countries seem to do a better job of naming these types of services? <laughs> like DoorDash is fine, Grubhub is fine. Just Eat, that's great. Takeaway.com, great. The best one I've seen, I don't know if you guys have seen this, Canada has a company called Skip the Dishes. Nice. That's the I best like name. I'm so, they win. Before I realized this was a merger, Just Eat Takeaway seemed a little long for me. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys, we'll see you a little bit later in the show. On May 27th, Motley Fool CEO Tom Gardner and senior analyst Abby Mallon got together and interviewed Mark Cuban. Part of that conversation is next, so stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Too many dirty dishes In the sink for just us two Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. Last week at our Fool Fest event, one of the headlining guests was Mark Cuban. Interviewing him were Motley Fool CEO Tom Gardner and senior analyst Abby Mallon. Now, Mark Cuban is an entrepreneur and owner of the Dallas Mavericks, but he's also one of the main shark investors on the hit reality TV series Shark Tank. And since Cuban is used to hearing investment ideas, Tom Gardner decided to pitch him one of his own. I know you get pitched on Shark Tank. Obviously, you get pitched outside of Shark Tank. Your world is probably a Shark Tank pitch experience. You are so right, Tom. So then we're going to introduce that concept right now. And I'm looking for you to shoot this one full of holes because I'm, I, I, I love my bad ideas. When I look at Facebook, Amazon, Google, Microsoft, Apple, when I look at their balance sheet and see, let's say, $450 billion plus, I think even more than that, in cash. 
not necessarily earning great rates of return. Obviously, it's a great thing for them to have that ballast through crisis, and they've earned that money, and and it's great that they've built that um, cash cow up. But if each of them took 10% of that cash, let's say $45 billion, and put it into a fund, Shark Tank runs the fund, Motley Fool can partner, an app is created, and they invest $150,000 into 300,000 different startups. Through an app, there will be a certain amount of fraud, Many of the companies will fail. One percent will do well. One half, one quarter of one percent will actually be awesome. And I actually think they'll make money on that fund and possibly create a million plus jobs out of pooling some capital and putting it not through the traditional VC channels, but through an app at scale that is different than universal basic income. It's universal basic investment. It, it right. tells entrepreneurs and people, you, you can get resources to get something started now. Uh, agree, disagree, like, dislike, how would you, how would you modify that? Don't dislike, but disagree, um, and not for the reason you expect. I get where you're going with it. I think it'd create a land grab that would be difficult to monitor, and they'd put themselves in a really bad social position because of who they said no to. And so it's the same reason we don't have Shark Tank for charities, right? Because you can't say no to anybody without looking like a really bad guy um, or girl. And so that's not necessarily a total response, but I'll tell you why I think them having that money right now is necessary for them. And that's AI. AI is hard. And the companies that you mentioned are the only company or one of a part of a select few companies that are really good at AI. And AI is not only hard, but it's really expensive. And we don't know necessarily all the directions it's going to take us. And so for companies who are starting to dominate in AI, it's, I think it's important for them to have that backlog of cash and resources. And I think it's also important for national security that they do because as a country, we're doing a piss poor job of, of investing in future technologies. If you look at um, Russia and China, they're the first to tell you that AI, whoever dominates AI dominates the globe. Yet as a country, we're just minimally investing in AI. We're not investing in robotics and you know we're third falling to fourth place in robotics. And if we have any interest in competing with the Chinese and kicking their ass um, in manufacturing or other endeavors, including national defense again, we're gonna have to become the best at AI. And right now we're behind Japan, Germany, and China, we're fourth. And then there's precision medicine that I think companies will start taking more, more do more investments in there as well. So long roundabout answer, I think because AI is so hard and so expensive, um, I think I'd rather see the hand, that money as a good American in their hands, even though the entrepreneur in me says, boy, how much fun would that be to be a young startup entrepreneur and have all that funding available? Now that said, since we as a sovereign nation don't do a good job of um, investing in those high-end technologies, and, and in fact, we've become a nation of AI haves and AI have nots, and that's that's not a good place for us competitively, domestically. I wouldn't be opposed if we did that on a sovereign basis and really, you know, took the SBA to another level and invested in, in startups that way. Shifting gears a little bit, but kind of related, as the owner of the Dallas Mavericks, we know that you are paying your hourly workers through the entire suspended season, like you mentioned. If you owned a team and you couldn't afford to pay your workers through the season, um, what's an excellent alternative route? You know, um, so, you know, the, the hourly employees that work for our, the arena that I own half of, right, there's just no events. And so while we pay them for all the Mavericks events that would have occurred, 
There's other things like concerts that's not really our business that we haven't been able to pay them for. So what we've done is connected with a company called ShiftSmart, ShiftSmart.com. And they have a program that we donated money to called Get Shift Done, S-H-I-F-T, done dot, I don't remember if it's a com or org, but what they've done is found um, um, nonprofits that need people to do work because fewer people have the ability to go out and, and work at nonprofits. And we donated money and they created Shift. So you download this app and you know, it says, okay, we have X number of hours and X number of shifts available at this nonprofit. It pays X number of dollars. And we've tried to hook up those employees who otherwise would have worked hours at the arena into working for nonprofits where donations like ours actually foot the bill. And that program also has been used to um, do call center applications and things that have had to just pop up very quickly during the pandemic. And they've been great at turning it around and creating jobs for those people. And that's what I'd recommend doing that those people who are, you know, and I'd never be the one to spend someone else's money. So those, those um, CEOs or entrepreneurs, owners who don't feel that, you know, either they don't want to, or they're not able to continue to pay their employees during the pandemic while they're not open or, or at, or not able to, to, operate profitably, working with programs like ShiftSmart, I think is a great way to do it. Uh, so when I look at the businesses that are struggling right now, one way to view them is they require that employees go to a physical place and that customers go to a physical place to, to transact. So um, restaurants, concert venues, hotels, these are, these are actually kind of the table stakes of the NBA. Yep. Um, so, so I'm wondering, projecting forward, five years to the extent that anyone could even know what's going to happen five months from now. But projecting forward five years, do you think attendance will be replaced by digital subscriptions, online tools, viewing from home will become a much more significant source of revenue uh, for the NBA than it is now? Is it possible that the digital experience will become more than half of the revenues? You know, it's a great question because it's certainly something we've had to address. It's it's part of the evolution of this country, right? We went from agrarian to industrial to hybrid, digital and physical. And now we're seeing the minimization of physical wherever we possibly can and with the reduced number of touch points. So obviously we've had to ask ourselves that question. So the first response is it depends on a vaccine, right? So if we get a vaccine, whenever that is, and actually I'm very confident that we will, I can't give you a date, but I think it's gonna be sooner I, you know, I'm just a science geek like a lot of people and I'm reading all these things about, you know, I think Ray Kurzweil wrote an article saying that the consortium of companies working on the um, on the vaccine is using AI to create these these metaphysical I don't know, bodies, right, where they can test all the different potential aspects of a vaccine. And so, I'm, I'm you know, that and if that's real and I have no reason to believe it's not then I think we'll get one sooner. So there's one bucket if we do get the vaccine, then things can be a smarter normal, meaning we'll reduce touch points, we'll use voice activation, we'll have flow of people, you know, we'll have AR driven apps that guide people with warnings on don't go here, don't go there. So you don't, you know, we reduce our touch points. Um, if there's not a vaccine, then you'll, and then it depends on testing and the accuracy of testing and the speed of testing. So right now, it may be the Gardner family, if there's six of you wants to come to a Mavs game, we can sit you together and we'll make an effort as a sales organization to go out there and sell to families or quote unquote quarantine groups. So it may be your, you know, your, your grandparents moved in and your 
aunts and your uncles and your cousins all moved in and we can sell you as a group to come to a Mavs game and then social distance with spacing around there. Um, and then we can start to expand those um, quarantine groups, the easier testing um, becomes. So if testing really, and it's, let's just say for the sake of example, it's 95% accurate that you just spit in the tube and five minutes later, um, you, you've got a yes or a no. Well, that's no different than walking through a metal detector in a lot of respects or going through TSA. And so we'll be able to accommodate there. If it just goes, all goes to hell and just there's no way, then we'll do some of the things we're already starting to do already. You know, streaming has changed a lot in 25 years. Bandwidth is, is dramatically more available. So we can, bandwidth has become fungible in a lot of respects. So we're gonna be able to deliver those games in a variety of different ways, suited if not tailored to the individual and how they wanna receive them. And so we may have one version for betters. We may have another for old school fans who like, you know, the traditional broadcast. We may have another who prefer a Twitch broadcaster type approach or a YouTube broadcaster type approach, you know, a TikTok approach where everybody dances the whole way through. Who knows? But we have that opportunity to whether subscriptions or advertisers supported won't matter. We'll be able to take that fungible bandwidth and customize it. How do you think of a billionaire's responsibility in an American life. So do you have the same responsibility, maybe more, maybe less than the average citizen to invest in making the world better? You know, I never want to speak for somebody else. Here, here's what I know. You know, my, in my position, the marginal value of another dollar is close to zero. It's not going to change my life, not even a little bit. And so that gives me an opportunity to do things that I probably wouldn't have done 20 years ago, things that are important to me now that weren't important to me 10 years ago. And just, you know, between age and my, my financial circumstances, it's more rewarding for me to, to try to help and contribute. But that, that's a combination of things. It's not just, you know, being a billionaire. Um, on the flip side, I, I met a couple guys, not many, believe it or not, but a couple guys, um, and they're men that are billionaires that just want that next dollar no matter what. It's a race. It's like watching billions and it's tax capital. You know, those people are their own worst enemies. But generally... I think we have a responsibility to pay more in taxes, contribute more, particularly when, when things are difficult. And so, again, I think generally, yes, we have that obligation to do more, contribute more, pay more, but, uh, you know, everybody's going to be different. Everybody's circumstances are different. I listened to your interview on how I built this, uh -huh. and you mentioned the book that you kept on your desk about wanting to retire by 35. Yes, back so there somewhere, yeah. <laughs> I'm just curious to hear, you know, what is your driving force behind that? If it's not another dollar, what is really making you so motivated now? A couple things. One, I love to compete. Business is the ultimate sport. And while, you know, when I was in my 20s, you know, time, you know, there were so many uncertainties, so many things that I never knew whether or not I'd ever be able to experience. And so I wanted to retire at age 35 because I wanted all my time to myself to be able to try everything and anything. And I, I got pretty good at it. And, you know, going forward, it's just, it's just different now. You know, it's just, I just have a completely different perspective. And what drives me is just competing. I, you know, I still have those competitive juices. Um, and yeah, I want, I want to make money, but I just don't need necessarily need to, to hoard it like I would have in the past. I can put it through my foundation. I can donate it. I can invest in people. And that's what I do a lot of. Let's go closing lightning round now. And uh, once again, just rapid fire answer and a one sentence explanation as to why. So let's start with Jack Dorsey or Elon Musk. Elon. And YouTube. why? Oh, I just, you know, Jack is great. He's a great entrepreneur and he's done some great things, but Elon has changed the world. YouTube or Spotify? Um, YouTube. 
And just because just more variety, Spotify, you know, fills a need, but YouTube has just got more going on. What's your favorite Shark Tank pitch in history and why? Oh my God. I like the scams, believe it or not. Um, like we had these balance bracelets where they, they said, you know, by wearing this bracelet, your balance improves and your core improves just by wearing it. And I just tore them apart. And I remember that. Uh, and there's, there's been other times when we've had supplement companies making these claims and I just tear them apart. And they know I live for those moments because I don't want everybody and their brother to, to think this is a good thing and they should buy it because Shark Tank's the world's ultimate commercial. You know, it, people just, because the product's on there, that a lot people want to buy it. And so I, I really feel that obligation. Okay, and maybe one more. Sure. Um, the year is 2024 and you have to pick one. The Mavs win it all or Mark Cuban is elected president? Mavs win it all. That's a great <laughs> question. That's the, best, that's the best framing of that question ever, <laughs> ever. Up next, get ready to take some notes. We got a couple of stock ideas for your watch list. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Basketball is my favorite sport. I like the way to dribble up and down the court. Just like out the king on the microphone. So it's Dr. J and Moses Malone. I like slam dunks and take me to the home. My favorite play is the alley. Ooh, I like the pick and roll. I like the give and go. Cause it's basketball. Uh, Mr. Curtis As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here once again with Jason Moser and Ron Gross. Guys, before we bring in our man Dan Boyd uh, for Radar Stocks, I want to talk about Hertz for a minute, because shares of Hertz Global, the rental car company that recently filed for bankruptcy, they were up more than 50% Friday morning. Ron, what is going on here? Craziness, Chris. Simply craziness. They have asked a bankruptcy judge to allow them to sell $1 billion worth of common stock. Now, what you need to understand is that in a bankruptcy proceeding, specifically Chapter 11, which is reorganization, not liquidation, common shareholders typically get wiped out most of the time. I'm uh, unhappy to say it's happened to me. I've ridden a company all the way down to nothing in the hopes that I would get something in the reorg, and it just typically does not happen. So if you're one of these uh, either institutional or retail investors that wants to get in on this offering and help out Hertz raise a billion dollars, you run the very real risk of getting wiped out if their reorganization doesn't work. Um, that is a very speculative position um, to be undertaking. It, honestly, it's almost too speculative to make any sense. Uh, it, from the company's perspective, it's, it's theoretically cheaper to raise equity capital than it would be to, to raise typical debtor in possession financing, which can be quite expensive. Um, money that allows you to bridge the gap between now and when you actually reorg. But I would just caution investors, very, very speculative. I wouldn't touch this. It's still a rental car company, right? I mean, it's still the same business. They have they haven't come out with like, oh, and by the way, we're launching a cloud software division as well. And they have a new cryptocurrency they'd like to sell you as well. No, video streaming, I think, was what I saw on the last call. <laughs> All right, let's get to the stocks on our radar. Our man Dan Boyd is going to hit you with a question. Uh, Jason Moser, you're up first. What are you looking at this week? Uh, sure, taking a look at Fastly ticker uh, F. SLY. They play in the edge cloud market, and uh, ultimately, this brings 
the cloud data and processing architecture actually closer to, to us physically. Um, it, you know, what they call it on the edge of the cloud. But the idea is to be able to deliver content and data more quickly. And this really does play into the 5G movement as quicker and more robust delivery uh, will most certainly need to use edge uh, cloud computing power. And so allied market uh, research estimates the edge computing market will uh, grow to about $16.5 billion in 2025. Fastly certain one of the companies playing in that sandbox. The stock has had a great year, up 120% plus uh, so far this year. Strong insider ownership with founder Artur Bergman owning around 10% of the shares and, and other insiders owning more. A very healthy balance sheet. Still a fairly new company having just IPO'd a year ago. So, of course, it's not profitable. Still lacking all that stuff like cash flow that we look for. <laughs> but I really do like what I'm seeing with this one and, and with the... Uh, with the new 5G service, Chris, we've just launched, this is definitely one on my watch list. Dan, question about Fastly? Certainly, Chris. So, <laughs> when I think of the edge of a cloud, I think of the silver lining. So, Jason, would you say that this company has a silver lining in the future? I absolutely would say that, Dan. I think that edge cloud computing is probably still a little bit uh, unfamiliar to a lot of folks, but as we get to understand it better, this will be one of the companies that uh, people remember. Ron Gross, what are you looking at this week? Dan, this is just a radar stock, not a recommendation, so don't beat me up here with the hard question. Uh, it's a recent David Gardner recommendation, actually. Globus Medical, GMED, a medical device company focused on musculoskeletal disorders. <laughs> Easy for me to say. Uh, they make the Excelsius GPS robotic system for spinal surgery, which they acquired in 2014. Minimally invasive surgeries are increasing. Uh, increased usage of this system will increase their implantable device sales. Core business, 190 products, is actually very profitable. So don't think biotechy, kind of unprofitable. Not sure what, where this is going. They have a profitable business, but there is a fair amount of competition, including J and J, who is going to probably get into this business. Dan, question about Globus Medical. Absolutely, Chris. So, Ron, I don't know much about Globus Medical, but I do know something about the Globo Gym Purple Cobras from the movie Dodgeball. And I just wanted to say, is that a good movie? You like that one? Uh, they don't get much better. Uh, that is a classic movie. For those have, who have not seen it, please, please check it out. That's a bold move, Gotten. <laughs> Dan, what do you want to add to your watch list? Uh, I'm going to add Fastly oh. to the watch list this time, Chris, because... Jason didn't put a caveat at the front of the uh, radar stock. <laughs> hey, no. Sorry, oh, sorry right. for being transparent. All right, we're out of time. Guys, thanks for being here. We'll Thank see you. you next week.